Um, so hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am uh, delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Robert Epstein, an American professor, psychologist, author and journalist, former editor-in-chief at Psychology Today, founder of the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology, star of the documentary The Creepy Line and the outspoken critic of Google. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. You've done quite a lot of uh, amazing things in your career. It's been it's been quite a quite an eclectic collection of different areas you've studied as well, which is really fascinating. Well, I get interested in things, and then I dig in, and uh, I never expected to dig in on Google and big tech, but uh, they they piqued my curiosity. That's uh, about more than ten years ago, and I've just keep digging, uh, and the more the more I dig, the more concerned I get. Yeah, I can imagine, um, especially like I, I'm sure I've only scratched the surface uh, comparative to, to the amount of work you've, you've done, um, especially some of the studies, which I actually found out um, I had looked at when I was researching for my first book. Um, I get, when I was looking at research on yourself, I was like, hang on, I know this study. <laughs> um, I've been talking a lot about uh, how social media kind of amplifies uh, existing polarization that's there because the, the question mm -hmm. had been like why why social media had made things so crazy in in america and then to a slightly lesser extent um the uk and i find it fascinating that they were specifically like seeming to be more influenced or or more more polarized as a result of social media and compared to like more stable sort of eastern and or sorry western and central european states that have got like the same access to it but don't seem to be as as affected by it well, that's one of the things that, uh, that my team and I have been studying uh, since early 2013 is uh, we've been looking for new forms of influence that the, in the internet has made possible, the internet and new technologies have made possible. And we, the first one was we, we ended up calling SEAM, the search engine manipulation effect that had to do with the power that search results have to shift people's opinions and even their votes. And it's, it's mind blowing. It was to me at the time when we first ran our, uh, our first series of experiments, uh, how much power uh, the search engine has to shift opinions and votes among people who are undecided, among people who are vulnerable, who can be influenced. Uh, but those are the people who decide elections, especially close elections. So in other words, uh, we had calculated that as of 2015, uh, around the world, uh, Google was determining the outcomes of upwards of 25% of the national elections in the world, because a lot of elections are very close, and because uh, of the power that, that biased search results have to shift uh, thinking and opinions, and I can say more about that if, uh, if you'd like at some point. But the point is, that was just the first discovery. We, we published uh, in 2022 an effect we call the AnswerBot effect. We, we show how uh, personal assistants such as uh, Amazon Alexa or Siri, which, by the way, gets all of her answers from Google, uh, we show how uh, answer bots, how these personal assistants, which more and more people are using now, I think we're up to almost a billion, uh, how they can shift people's opinions and people's votes uh, without people's awareness, by the way, without people's awareness. 
And uh, search results and answers on personal assistance, they're called ephemeral events or ephemeral experiences, meaning they are generated just for you on the fly. Uh, they affect you, they disappear, they're gone forever, and there's no going back. In other words, there's no way authorities can track ephemeral experiences. So we had to start working on that problem uh, starting in 2016. And I can talk about our monitoring systems now, which have gotten very sophisticated. But we have coming up, we have new publications coming up that are even more disturbing. Uh, we have a, uh, a scientific piece coming out on Twitter. Uh, if people want to look at the preprint, they can go to targeted messaging effect dot com targeted messaging effect.com so that's another effect we discovered which is tme or targeted messaging effect and we found that uh that twitter uh can easily shift voting preferences by upwards of 87 percent without people knowing that they are being manipulated and again because the content is, is ephemeral without leaving a paper trail for authorities to trace, which is why this year we're starting for the first time to, uh, to track ephemeral content on Twitter. But we have more coming out. We have new research coming out on YME, the YouTube manipulation uh, effect on uh, search suggestions, SSE, the search suggestion effect uh, and more. And we have new research underway on techniques that are starting to sound a little bit esoteric, like the DDE, the differential demographics effect. But the 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 point is that uh, the the internet has made possible new forms of influence, new forms of manipulation, which um, are extremely disturbing because they're not like television commercials, they're not like billboards. Let's say you and I are running against each other in an election and you put up a big billboard on one side of main street. Well, first of all, everyone can see it. So we know you're doing it. Um, and second, I can put up my own billboard. I know as I can counteract your billboard, I can put mine right next to yours or put it across the street. I can make mine bigger and brighter uh, than your billboard. Uh, the same with television commercials, radio commercials, internet advertising, uh, you know, the kind of advertising that Cambridge Analytica was doing on Facebook, for example, was visible to people and could be counteracted. But the new forms of influence that I've been discovering and naming and quantifying now for 10 years, it's completely different. It's completely different because people generally can't even see that it's occurring. So it's subliminal. Uh, you can't counteract it. You know, most forms of influence, especially in elections, are competitive. They're inherently competitive. But the kinds of uh, manipulations that are, are now possible uh, because of the Internet and they're now in the hands of uh, monopolies, big tech monopolies, uh, they're not competitive. They're, they're, they're inherently non-competitive. In other words, if, if Google wants to support a certain candidate or a cause, uh, there's nothing you can do. You can't put up your own billboard. You see, you, you can't counteract what they're doing because what they're doing is subliminal. It's very sneaky. Um, my team is 
we're we're just about the only team in the world that that actually knows about these techniques and studies them and quantifies them and publishes about them. So it's a completely different world of influence that's never existed before. And it's occurring not just uh, in the US, it's not just our eyes that are seeing all this stuff. Uh, Google and Facebook between them are serving right now more than, or not just serving, but influencing and manipulating more than 3.5 billion people around the world. Uh, in almost every country in the world, except China, mainland China. Uh, and so we're talking about new forms of influence that have never existed before that are in the hands of a, a, a couple of executives at some big monopolies and that are impacting people around the world that cannot be counteracted. So kind of see what I'm getting at here? The, and, the, and, and the more we have studied this and looked for these kinds of techniques, the more we found. And the more we find, the more concerned that we get. Uh, and we're concerned not just about elections, but uh, very, very recently we've gotten a concern about children. I think I think that's the biggest threat to humanity is the way that that these tech lords uh, are impacting kids because they know the power they have. I mean, I I stumble upon things, I discover things, I name things. But they actually know the power they have. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from whistleblowers in recent years. We know that from leaked documents. We know that from uh, leaked videos, leaked emails. Quick example, which blew my mind when I read this. In 2018, some um, emails leaked from Google to the Wall Street Journal. And in the email exchange, one Google employee is saying to others, how can we use, now, I'm not kidding, This, by the way, this is really what it said. How can we use ephemeral experiences to change people's views about Trump's travel ban? I, I, I read that and there was the phrase ephemeral experiences, which I had been studying at that point for five years. And I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it that internally at the company, they actually use that language. They know the power they have to change people's thinking. And they know about the power of ephemeral experiences. And they know that ephemeral experiences don't leave a paper trail, which is why you know it's a preferred way uh, to, to exercise mind control. Uh, they know. They, they, in other words, whatever it is I've, been discovering whatever it is I'm studying now. I'm, I'm sure that it's a drop in the bucket. They know much more than I do. They're way ahead of me. Uh, and as Joe Rogan, you know, eventually came to to believe by the end of the, the interview that, that he did with me a few months ago, uh, the biggest problem here is that is that I seem to be the only, uh, you know, credentialed scientist in the world who is studying these things mm. and figuring out how finally to make these uh, companies accountable. Uh, why aren't there hundreds of labs 
around the world, hundreds of research groups around the world doing what I do. I, I, I mean, I don't even worry anymore about someone beating me to the punch on, on you know, the, the targeted messaging effect or whatever it is we're, we're about to come out with because no one's, no one's looking. Uh, and one of the main reason, reasons for that is because Google, Google especially, is very generous <laughs> in supporting research uh, at major universities around the world. That's one of the reasons, um, you know, we're, we're, we're alone. We're alone. It's kind of scary, by the way. Yeah, I, I bet it is. Um, I mean, I've, I've read plenty of, um, plenty of stuff that is talking, that's talked about how Facebook or Twitter or YouTube have been exploited in, in their algorithms to either like stir up a lot of hate and controversy anger and um outrage or i've seen things about how you know people using targeted ads can can you know change people's minds if they're targeting the right people like the cambridge analytica stuff that you alluded to but there isn't much that i've ever come across well really at all actually <laughs> apart from yourself that that's talking specifically and like intellectually about the the ways in which the very algorithms themselves and the, the timeline or just the way in which uh, search results appear is, is, is so influential. It's, it's really scary. Um, I want to, I want to try and just clarify exactly what you mean by ephemeral events, because like, I, I think, I, I think I get it, but I just want to, want to yeah clarify it in terms of like the different platforms. So in terms of, of Google, are you talking about specifically then the, the way in which the search rankings appear now because they're personalized and then there's no technical like footprint of those? Yes, the search results, first of all, uh, they are personalized. Uh, <clears throat> even if you use an, an anonymized computer, which is what some researchers do foolishly, very foolishly, because uh, Google's algorithm can recognize an anonymized computer. It has no history. It has no Google profile. So whatever it sends to an anonymized computer tells you nothing about what it's sending to real people. And some of the people who've uh, supposedly looked for political bias on Google, that's what they're using. They're using anonymized computers, uh, which, of course, show no bias because... <laughs> We, we've shown this ourselves, is that when, when Google knows that we're watching them, they turn off the bias. So uh, these, these so-called researchers, they're pathetic in my view. These so-called researchers, and I, 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 I could name them by name, but I'm not going to, uh, use anonymized computers you know, to, to looking for bias. That, that, that's ludicrous. So... Yes. First thing is you're, you're getting personalized content for personalized search results. So that's ephemeral. It disappears. It's not preserved anywhere. It's not stored. You're also getting personalized search suggestions. Uh, those are the, the phrases that are, you're, that are flashed at you while you're typing a search term. Those, it turns out, can be used to manipulate. We've shown in experiments that just by manipulating search suggestions, we can turn in, a, in controlled experiments, we can turn a 50-50 split among undecided voters into more than a 90-10 split. 
What? More than a 90-10 split. Just from the suggestions, not even from the actual results that appear. Well, no, the suggestions, once someone clicks, that that determines uh, the list of search results. So it's, it's biased suggestions working in conjunction with biased search results. But the point is, we, we can show that just by manipulating those suggestions, which then generate search results, uh, we can turn a 50-50 split among undecided voters into more than a 90-10 split. And, and your reaction was, what? And that was my reaction, too. You know, I had a, I had a team over here uh, from NPR uh, that really screwed me over, by the way, because they did not come here uh, to, to actually do any kind of legitimate piece on my work. They came here to uh, to trash my work. But, the you know, the interviewer started off by asking me some questions just like yours. And I started giving him numbers. And he said, well, uh, that's hard to believe, isn't it? And I, I replied, hard to believe. I said, no, it's completely unbelievable. I said, that's, that's why I repeat these experiments over and over again with different groups. That's why, you know, we, there are published replications of my work. I said, this is completely unbelievable. These, these effects that we've stumbled onto, they're unbelievable, but they're real. They're real. And so we have to pay attention to them. We can't just dismiss them as, well, that's hard to believe. They're real. So anyway, ephemeral content. So yes, search results, search suggestions, which can, uh, which can influence people. And then the answer, answer boxes on Google. Uh, because now more and more, they're just actually giving you the answer in a box. Mm -hmm. And we've shown in experiments that when they do that, well, guess what? People spend less time looking at search results and less time clicking on search results. And they, a lot of people believe what's in the answer box. So it turns out, yes, we can shift opinions and voting preferences with answer boxes. We can increase the size of seam. In other words, we can increase the impact of biased search results with a biased answer box. And again, Google knows this, but all of that is ephemeral. And that's just on, that's just on Google, answer boxes, search suggestions, search results. But you know, there are other platforms uh, out there and they're, they're also serving up ephemeral content. Uh, and even Google, uh, you know, Google has, they have other services, quote unquote. For example, you can go to Google News and you'll see news feeds. Well, those news feeds are ephemeral. They're also generated on the fly. They're also personalized. Uh, they can also be used to influence. Uh, Twitter feeds are ephemeral. Obviously, they're generated yeah. just for you. They're generated on the fly. They disappear. They're gone forever. Uh, answers on personal assistance are ephemeral. Mm. If are I they, say Alexa, are they yeah. also like personalized? The the personal assistant answers are they sort of more consistent, or is it just as on the fly? Well, they're also personalized, yeah. But let but let's let's say they weren't. Hmm. Let's say that uh, they're they're still uh, still customized. predatory. Yeah. Well, it's still predatory, and they're still customized. For example, they're still going to send different content to someone in a red state than someone in a blue state. 
or to someone in another country than someone here. And the country by country difference, which we've looked at, can be shocking. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, <clears throat> the Guardian, like the New York Times, and for that matter, like UCLA and the University of Michigan, and like a lot of places, the Guardian, which which does investigative research uh, on tech and many other topics, the Guardian uses Google products to run everything at the Guardian. Mm. So among other things, that means even though you're getting an email from someone at theguardian.com, uh, if you actually look at the routing on the email, you'll find that it runs through Google because they're, they're, it, the Guardian.com emails are all Gmails. Mm. So that means the Guardian is sharing all of its content, all of its emails, all of its attachments, all of its Google Docs, all of its spreadsheets, everything. When, when they're working on an investigative story, even researching Google, they're sharing everything with Google. <laughs> so a particular uh, reporter there who, who really did some very powerful uh, hit pieces on, on Google, uh, you know, I said to her, I, I don't even know, how are we supposed to communicate when you're, you, you are sharing everything with, with Google itself? And she said, well, I don't like that any more than you do. That's, a, that's handled by the business people. So here's a reporter, a top reporter, acknowledging that she knows that they've given up their privacy to Google. Anyway, so she is always looking for th things they do that are disturbing. So among other things, she finds that, uh, that when you type something like, um, are Jews, J-E-W-S, are Jews, uh, Google would send you things like, are, are Jews evil? Uh, and... So this reporter, um, Carol Cudwallader, mm. she she was kind of testing this out, and she she and it, and it occurred to her that a lot of suggestions that were being made by Google would would take people down rabbit holes into the world of extremism, mm. extreme white supremacy, extreme Islam, and so she. Complain she wrote an article about this. She complained to Google. And so Google uh, uh, made some changes, which was, at least she thought they made some changes. <laughs> so I, I said to her, you know, uh, yeah, they did make some changes so that in the UK and in the US, if you, if you type our Jews, it, it's not giving you our Jews evil anymore. I said, yeah, so good job. Well done, Carol. I said, but check Canada because it's still happening in Canada. I said, check, check France and type in, you know, sans les juifs, are the Jews, just type that in. It, it, France is still giving you, are they evil? Uh, check any of the Arab countries. Then you get even worse things. I said, so, you know, you've been fooled. They have fooled you. You know, they, they do whatever they want to do country by country, region by region, person by person. And all of that content is ephemeral. But what I'm trying to say is even if even if they're not 
personalizing. They're still changing what they send people uh, by by region, by demographic. So, you know, they're still messing with us. They are still messing with us, and the content is still ephemeral. So you still can't go back in time and figure out what they were showing people what research results or search suggestions or answer box they were showing people in France last year. Uh, Carol ended up concluding, by the way, among other things, that that Google had fixed, had altered the the outcome of the Brexit vote, Mm. which is still causing no end of of problems uh, in Europe. Yes. Uh, because of course the UK pulled out of the of the European Union, and uh, yes, that was the topic Car- of my first book, <laughs> and I cited no. Carol uh, Carol a lot in the book, a lot of her work, actually. Well, one of the things she was saying was she thinks that Google had a lot to do with this, and she thinks that it's a shame. She said that we can't go back in time and find out what they were showing people. Of course, because it's all ephemeral. That's that the key to all of this is ephemeral content, which it turns out is exactly what we've been studying uh, since early 2013, and it's uh, it's 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 mind blowing. Uh, little footnote here, since you mentioned uh, Brexit and and Carol Cudwallader from the Guardian. Footnote: A reporter from the Times of London. Uh, was interested in my work at some point. This was right before the Brexit vote. And he said, could a company like Google make a difference in the outcome? I said, yes. He said, well, how big a difference? I said, well, if, if you get me some facts and figures, I said, I'll run some calculations and I'll tell you. Now, at this point in time, the polls were, were, could not call a winner. They were neck and neck. The polls could not call a winner, period. No one knew whether... Uh, the Brexit vote in the UK was going to pass or not. Mm-hmm. So was was the UK going to pull out of the European Union or not? No one knew. So this reporter gives me a bunch of numbers, which I asked for. I ran the calculations and I said, well, okay, Google can, Google can shift because there's a certain number of undecided voters right now there we know from you know surveys. And Google can shift uh, 400,000 votes, I said, without anyone knowing that they're doing it. And without leaving, leaving a paper trail. And he said, wow, that's amazing. He didn't believe me and he never ran the story. Mm. So Brexit passed by guess how many votes? Oh, what was it? I can't even remember now. It was about 400,000 400, votes, <laughs> roughly speaking. You can look it up. But uh, you know, now that's probably just a coincidence. But this has happened over and over again in, in my work. I've, I've, I've told people, I have told people publicly, I've told members of Congress, I've told attorneys general, I've told people over and over again how many votes uh, these companies can shift. And Biden ends up winning by a margin of six or seven million votes. Mm. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by about 2.8 million votes. I had... I had said in writing repeatedly before that election in 2016, I had said repeatedly that Google can shift between 2.6 and 10.4 million votes, depending on the assumptions you make and depending how aggressive they are. Mm. And Hillary won the popular vote by 2.8 million votes. So the question is, 
So what would happen if, if Google had not exercised any influence in Brexit, mm. had not exercised any influence in our elections here in the US? Well, in 2016, that suggests to me that if they had Google had pulled out, uh, that the popular vote would have been extremely close. That's, uh, yeah, and, that's, yeah. and the and the Brexit they, vote would have been unca uncallable. Do we know? Like, I'm thinking. Uh, first of all, actually, just for clarity for people, uh, it was by 1.3 million votes. Actually, Leave had 17 million 400 thousand, and Remain had 16 million 140 thousand. So, uh, yeah, just a ah. yeah, smidge under 1.3 million. Um, but I mean, it, yeah, the the scale to which. I guess it's not the question isn't like whether that specific election was swayed by it. It's more about, you know, the, the power that they, they actually have. Um, and, and the thing that is in, popping into my head is like, is there enough storage in the world to, to keep track of that kind of, of the, of the this <laughs> ephemeral content? Like I, I, in my head, I'm like, do, do, like if you, if you stormed like the Google headquarters, right. And you went in or the Twitter headquarters and like you searched them and you went, I don't know, 20 stories underground into their super like deep vault of like data storage. Like could they tech, could they store all this data somehow? Or is it just, is it too much to even like fathom? Well, you know, that's a very good question. And I can answer it in two different ways. One is technically speaking, yes, they probably could, but they never would. That's the whole point. They mm. want content to be ephemeral. That's why they use that, that expression. They want content to be untraceable. That, that gives them a lot of power. But there's another way for me to answer the question, which is for you to just pull out your phone, whatever it is, because your phone is listening. Mm. Your phone is recording your phone is transmitting and it never stops now that's a lot of content think how many phones there are around the world and all of that content is being captured so yes technically if uh, these days memory is so cheap uh and bandwidths are so wide that uh yeah you can you could capture pretty much everything uh i mean you pay for it but yes, you could capture it. Now, the kind of phone I use doesn't do that. I use a special phone, which uh, Joe Rogan was quite interested in and wanted me to reveal details about. And I, I said, I said, are you crazy? I'm going to, I'm going to tell all, all of your listeners how I protect my privacy. <laughs> but anyway, but uh, most people have phones that are uh, surveillance devices, and even when you turn them off, they're still surveillance devices. How can that be? Well, you look old enough. I don't know how old you are, but you look old enough to remember back just a few years when you could pop the battery out of your phone. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, which was very uh, convenient because it meant when your battery was getting weaker, you could just replace it easily. Uh, and they still get weaker. And now, of course, I've forces you to buy a new phone. So that's, you know, a sales strategy on the part of uh, these companies is they decided to solder in the batteries so you couldn't replace them. But there's another advantage too. If they solder in the batteries, when you turn the phone off, it's, it's not off. It's current is still running. And by the way, that you can prove that, you know, with, with, a, with a voltmeter or an ammeter, you can show that the, there's current still flowing. 
And you uh, and people know that if you turn your phone off and you keep it off long enough for a number of days, that battery is getting weaker. You turn it back on and some of that charge is gone. Why? Because it's still on. So they solder the battery in because it makes this, uh, that device into a much more powerful surveillance device. And surveillance is the, is the key to the money. You know, this uh, big book came out what, a couple of years ago called uh, The Surveillance Capitalism by a former Harvard professor. And uh, you know, Google invented the surveillance business model. And the, the whole idea of it is that you just track people, every single thing they do, the more the merrier. Uh, and by the way, Google just doesn't stop. They, they get more and more aggressive. So, you know, they Google, uh, Google connected people are behind the 23andMe company that, that collects DNA data. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's that Google. doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so don't use 23andMe. You can use the other one, which is run by the Mormons, which is, I think, called archive.com or something. Oh. But 23andMe is, is Google. Google has invested in uh, DNA repositories. Google, at one point, free, 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 right? Everything's free. Uh, free of charge took over the United States National DNA Repository. Now, why? Why the interest in DNA? Because they've been adding DNA information uh, to our profiles because DNA more and more and more is giving them information about our health problems or the health problems we will have in the future and all of that can be monetized. They also, along the way, they end up learning, you know, which uh, dads have been cuckolded and are not the genetic relatives of their children. So they get lots and lots of, you know, extra goodies from DNA information. Uh, Google uh, recently bought Fitbit. Fitbit uh, gives Google 24-hour access to physiological information about millions of people. Google, I have no evidence of this, but it wouldn't surprise me if Google directly or indirectly was connected to the COVID uh, pandemic. Why? Well, because it's two industries that benefited from, from COVID and are still benefiting. Uh, obviously, the pharmaceutical uh, industry, big pharma, that, that's obvious. Hundreds of billions of dollars just thrown at them. And now everyone's getting uh, vaccinations every six months. I just got my fifth, <laughs> my fifth vaccine, which is the new, uh, the new Omicron variant vaccine. I just got my fifth one. Uh, but the other industry that's, that has benefited has been big tech because uh, more and more people have, have, were forced to go online because of, of work or having nothing to do. Uh, and the coronavirus gave uh, big tech, Google in particular, access to health information that they'd never had access to before. Uh, so they could track the disease and track its spread. And uh, so they had, they, it was an absolute windfall for these companies in terms of traffic, number one, and two, health information. And they, they knew this. They, they knew this. They knew that, that a worldwide pandemic would benefit uh, you know, their companies. These executives know this. So you know, I think rarely do we ever really learn what's happening behind the scenes. 
I think if we knew what was happening behind the scenes in big pharma, we would be horrified. If we knew what was happening behind the scenes in big tech, we would be horrified. Yeah. I think that would scare people more, actually, because pharmaceutical products, like you can just sort of opt out to a certain extent. You know, you can just say, I don't want them. You know, I don't want your right. painkillers. I don't want your, you know, whatever product they're trying to sell you. But the tech industry is so like embedded in our every day. Like, because I don't know, I don't know how many times I've had this conversation about this stupid little thing, right? About, you know, I was just talking about something and I was only talking about it. I didn't search for it anywhere. I didn't write it anywhere. And then all of a sudden the ads are popping up for it. And, sure. And it's like, have we all just accepted that that's happening? That they're just constantly listening? Like, this is the bit that... That, that really baffles me. And it, it, it you, there's a quote I found of yours um, in an LA Times article, and you said, people I'm closer to politically don't want to hear what I have to say. And, and I'm constantly just wondering, like, has, has anyone approached you from the government, being that you're one of the few people out here like looking at this? Like, has anyone approached you to say, hey, how would we perhaps put a handle on these companies? Is there any- Oh, sure, sure. Know? Well, I testified before the US Congress in 2019, which, which uh, turned out for me to be personally a, a, the beginning of a disastrous period of my life. Uh, they, the tech companies had pretty much left me alone before I testified before Congress. And after that, they went after me. And the New York Times went after me. And the, the Clinton machine went after me. And everyone went after me. I, I had had a flawless, absolutely spotless reputation as a scientist for 40 years. But when I finally got invited by Congress to talk about my work, uh, I got I got slaughtered. I got attacked by everyone. Now I'm a fraud. I mean, I, my work is meticulous. It adheres to the very highest standards of, of scientific integrity always. And I publish in top journals. And now I'm a fraud. So with with no evidence, no evidence at all. Uh, Hillary Clinton, whom I've always supported, actually, uh, in, in response to a, a tweet from President Trump at the time, who was tweeting about my research, Hillary Clinton said uh, that my work has been completely debunked. Those are her words. Really? And my work has never been debunked. Like, As she it, said, it was... Has yeah, anyone tried to refute? Your, your, has anyone from, from Google come along and be like, well... Here, this is this is blatantly not true because X, Y, Z. Has has that happened? Well, the CEO of Google has said uh, publicly and and, bef and before Congress that that um, you know they 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 don't agree with my work. They think it's methodologically unsound. Okay, but, but they've did never they give been specifics. Of course not. <laughs> uh, at one point, someone from Google, the head of Google Search, published a piece in Politico. Uh, attacking me, calling calling me a conspiracy theorist and saying my work was flawed. I, but I send people to that piece because there's nothing in there. There's not no specifics at all about how my work is flawed and how do I how do I get through, you know, top scientific reviewers and top journals? How do I get through that whole process, the peer review process to publish if my work is flawed? It's it's you know my my work is it's it's the best you could possibly do in the behavioral and social sciences, and uh, you know I mean all research is in some sense flawed. That's why we have a community of researchers, 
but my work uh, on SEMA has already been replicated, and I have no doubt that these other effects that we're now putting out there, that they'll all be replicated because our the effects are so large, number one, and number two, our our methodology is extremely rigorous. But so, yes, I've talked to people from Congress. Uh, I've been in touch with people from attorneys general offices around the country since 2015. Uh, I've spoken to, you know, the national association here of, of attorneys general. Um, I've, I did a private briefing uh in 2019, around the same time I testified, I did a private briefing for attorneys general uh, who had come to Stanford University. So I did a private briefing for some very influential AGs, uh, including the, the guy who's now head of, a, of an AG effort here in the U.S. to, to bring anti antitrust action and antitrust action against Google. Uh, which, by the way, the, a court just a few days ago upheld as, as a legitimate lawsuit. Google was trying to get it thrown out. But after that briefing, I went out into the hallway or waiting room, and one of the AGs walked out of that room where I'd done the briefing, and he said to me, uh, Dr. Epstein, I don't mean to disturb you, he said, but I'm pretty sure you're, you're, going, to, you're going to get killed. You're going to die in some sort of accident in the next few months. And uh, that was disturbing, uh, but of course I wasn't killed in an accident in a few months, but my wife was. Wow. That's, um, I hope, uh, not as a result of your work, really. I'll never know. I will never know. I will never know. I, uh, I, I have a theory about how they could easily have have caused uh, her death. It was a, a car accident. I, I spoke to one of the witnesses who was actually in the car right behind her little pickup truck that I had bought her. And uh, based on what that witness told me, it sounded to me like her brakes failed as she was getting onto the freeway. The freeway was wet and her, her little truck spun out and she got hit broadsided by a um, one of those huge tractor trailer trucks towing two loads of cement. Um, her car was just uh, crushed. She didn't die right away. I was in the hospital with her 24 hours a day for uh, four days. I you know I but I had my head to her chest. I heard her last heartbeat, her last breath. Uh, you know, I will never really. Uh, recover from that. I'm still wearing my, my wedding band. But, uh, I, you know, someone could easily have tampered with her brakes uh, the night before. Um, how would anyone know exactly where her pickup truck was? Because it wasn't home. How would anyone have? Well, after she died and after I, I began to come to my senses a little bit, I... Uh, started looking at her journals. I looked into her phone. I looked at her email accounts and so on. And I discovered, because she had an Android phone, and I discovered, I, I, I mean, there was so much on that phone, but among other things, 
there's a there's literally a, a a record of every single place that phone has gone going back years every, the route it took every little place where she stopped how many minutes she stayed at each location so uh, in other words if someone really did want to tamper with her brakes they and they had access to you know to google data because this is all google data they they would easily have known exactly where her pickup truck was uh, and that it was outside, it wasn't in a garage, uh, and that it wasn't home. So, you know, it wouldn't, it's not like it would have been outside my window or something. It wasn't home, it was at another place. It would have been very simple. Uh, you know, in other words, they have so much information and they're tracking continuously. You know, people have some awareness, like you with your phone and getting targeted ads, and, you know, people have some awareness that they're being surveilled. And as you point out, a lot of people just seem to be indifferent to it, but no one I know, well, except some of my close associates, I suppose, but most people I know have no idea how aggressively they're being surveilled. Google is not just surveilling people through Gmail, the incoming messages, the outgoing messages, the drafts, even the drafts, you know, you type up a crazy letter that you're about to send to your boss or your girlfriend, and it's a totally insane letter you just typed on Gmail, and you go, I'm not sending that. That's crazy. And you delete it. Doesn't matter. They, they, they've got it. That's, part, that's now in your profile. They've got it. And that's part of their analysis of you. But it's not just through Gmail that they're surveilling. It's not just through Google Docs through uh, the Chrome browser, which is their browser, not just through YouTube, which is the second largest search engine in the world. Google is the first. YouTube is owned by Google. They're not just surveilling you, looking at the videos you watch. I mean, those are these are kind of obvious things. Google is actually surveilling you through more than two hundred different platforms, most of which are completely invisible to people. After after Google bought the next company, which makes uh, smart thermostats, among other things, Google uh, started putting microphones into their next thermostat uh, de devices, and then they, uh, and it, and more recently they've added cameras. <clears throat> so they got caught on the microphones, and all they did was said, "Oh well, yes, we did put microphones in there, but we're not using them." <laughs> how, how would you know? Around the same time, by the way, I looked at, uh, I keep an eye on Google patent applications. Google was, was getting patents for methods for analyzing sounds recorded in people's homes. Because from sounds recorded in your home, Google can determine whether or not your sex life is okay. What? Whether or not you need counseling whether or not your kids are healthy and happy or whether or not your kids have some sort of problem and need, need a therapist. I mean, think of the things that they, can, that they know just by having one or more microphones in your home. And, you know, the Alexa device is a surveillance device. I mean, Alexa records have been, have been subpoenaed in court cases Everything that Alexa hears, Alexa records. And the same is true uh, for Siri. And the same is true for the Google Home device, which Google 
uh, has been trying to get people to put into every single room in their home. So we're, we're talking about Google alone, more than 200 different surveillance platforms, most of which people are unaware of. Uh, just give you one more example because it's so pervasive and so disturbing, I think. Uh, millions of websites to keep track of the, who, who visits their website, they use an, Google's Google Analytics, which is free, free, right? Mm -hmm. Free. Mm -hmm. So they use Google Analytics. So Google Analytics is installed on millions of websites. We, so when you go to a website that has Google Analytics, Google is tracking you every, every single thing you do on that website. You have no idea. You're, you don't, you're not aware of being connected to Google, but everything you do on that website is being tracked and information is being added to your uh, profile. Now, <laughs> what right do they have to track you when you're on some other website and you're using Google Analytics and you're totally unaware of that? What right do they have to track you? Well, because their terms of service actually says, you can read it, it's it's available online. I mean, I've read it, you know, when I, I I've read it many times. I read their updates. Their terms of service, which embeds their privacy policy, there's, so they're two separate documents connected to each other. Basically, it, it says straight out that, that we have a right to track you whenever you're using any kind of uh, Google software or service, even if you don't know you're using it. So we've all agreed to their terms of service by using any of their products. That's the other thing too, that it, what it actually says is you agree to these terms of service if you're using any of our products or services, even if you don't know you're using them. You've agreed to these terms of service. Now, how, how courts have, have, have put up with that nonsense, I have no idea, but they have. I guess that's- So yes, uh, but to answer your, your, your big question, uh, you know, have I talked to officials about how how some of this stuff can be uh, corrected? Yes, I've been talking for years to officials. Uh, Ted Cruz, whose politics I don't like, but Ted Cruz invited me for a, a private dinner with him. We talked for almost four hours straight about te about tech. We weren't talking about politics because that wouldn't have worked. We were talking about tech and, and Ted Cruz is, although in my, in my opinion, although he says crazy things at times, he's an extremely smart man and he understands these issues. And I kept saying to him, well, can't you do this? Can't you do that? I mean, I have, I have specific um, uh, actions that I've been recommending and writing about and, you know, talking to officials about for years. And he says, I'd have to have bipartisan support. <laughs> and I, I, so he I won't said, well, say anything about it until he has the support of enough people to pass a vote. No, he has said things, but he, the point is what he's saying is he can't get legislation passed. So right now the Congress is on the surface anyway, going after uh, Google and some other tech companies, uh, the attorneys general, the AGs around the country are going after them. Hmm. Uh, but most of what's happening is just it's just window dressing. It's just a way that officials have to say, look, we're doing something. And in fact, they're doing nothing. They're not addressing the three big threats 
that these companies pose, I call them Google and the gang, they're not addressing the three big threats. One is the surveillance. No one is addressing that. Second is the censorship. No one is addressing that. And third is, is the area that I study, which is manipulation. They're not even they're not even close to addressing manipulation. You know, they're, they're basically doing some things to allow themselves to say, look, we're doing something and they're doing nothing. I happen to know that Google uh, lawyers were involved in drawing up some of this new legislation. Oh, that's, well, as, that's, good as, that's as good as the, the accountants writing all the tax laws. That's <laughs> but, but that's, 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 common mm -hmm. that's very common in law yeah it, i know it, <laughs> that's the scary bit <laughs> yeah that's very common mm. uh, yeah yeah the, so uh, they're, they're gathering all this data in like massive 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 unfathomable quantities right like it, on on scales that we can't even like begin to think like conceptualize like well, we can... well, well, one of your European colleagues actually tried to figure this out at one point, and he concluded, he's been using the internet for 20 years, like I have, and he concluded that Google has the equivalent of 3 million pages of information about him. Is this Matt so Schrems by any chance? I think so, yeah. So yeah. if you, if you, I'm putting a number on what you just said, 3 million pages of information. Yeah. <sighs> right. So... Say they have that on each of us, and say yeah. con conservatively half the world uses Google. That's what. <laughs> like I don't even know. Like I don't even know how to figure that out in my head. It's too many zeros for me. Hang on, let me let me. And they'll, let me and they'll be they'll be past the four billion by the end of this calendar year. By the way, they'll have gone over the halfway mark. So, so we pass past four billion people. All right. Well, let's say four billion. Right. Four. How many zeros is that? One, two, three. Four billion. Yeah. Four billion times. Would you say three million pages? Yeah. That is one point two. Yeah, one point two with sixteen zeros. That's what it's coming up <laughs> <as. laughs> Um, that I don't know what that number is, but that is a well, lot. Well, that's one point two times ten to the sixteenth power is yes. what we would say in, in yes. scientific notation. Yeah, it's a very, very big. It's it's not as big as the number called Google. The Google is though. a number. Google yeah. is a number. It's one with a hundred zeros after it, and that's where Google got the the Google company got the name for the company. But the actual number is spelled G O O G O L. So Google changed the spelling, but that's what Google is, is one with a hundred zeros after it. And you're, you're saying, well, they're up to 1.6 with 16 zeros yeah. after it. Yeah. 1.2 with 16 zeros. So like, what is, what is their goal here from your understanding? Like, what are they amassing this monstrous pile of data? Is it just like, the, cause I don't know, they'll say, oh, so we can better serve our customers. And I don't buy that for a second. So right. like, what do you think their ultimate goal is? Well, they have, uh, they have multiple goals. Most people think it's just to make money. Obviously that's, uh, a, a high ranking goal. I'm not sure it's number one, but it's high ranking, very high ranking. And they, and they've made, you know, a lot of billionaires there. So, uh, and you know, I, I, 
I'm in touch with people there who who won't leave because they have stock. They have stock options and they want the stock to, to, you know, to vest and to reach its full value and all that. So, uh, you know, they. Couldn't they just leave and, and, and they, keep the stock options? Uh, it depends. It depends how long you stay. It depends okay. how long you stay. But the whistleblowers who've left, and I'm in touch with people who are thinking about becoming whistleblowers, but I'm also in touch with a lot of people who've left. And uh, one of them, Zach Voorhees, walked out with 950 pages of documents. I have lots to say about that if you, if you want to know. Or you could get Zach on your show. He's great. I'd love to have but, him on. Yeah, yeah. He's very good. I can put you in touch with him. But uh, the point is, that their number one goal, let's say, is to earn money. So they're doing that very well. They've, uh, and the um, COVID has helped them. So you know they they were bringing in, um, they were bringing in about a hundred billion dollars a year in revenue. Now they're past one point five billion dollars a year in revenue. So they're doing very well in that account. Uh, secondly, the, it, they they work with. Uh, intelligence agencies, not just not just the NSA and the CIA in the United States, but other intelligence agencies around the world. They got uh, funding. The two founders, when they were graduate students uh, at Stanford, and by the way, I've lectured in that same building where they where they developed the Google search engine, which is kind of funny. Hmm. Uh, but they they were getting uh, some of the startup money they got to you know as graduate students to start to to develop the search engine came from. Uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, because intelligence agencies need to, to spot threats. They need to spot threats to security. And what better way to do it than to have a search engine track people's searches, keep a record of people's searches. So right from the very outset, Google, unlike other search engines, Google started tracking and eventually figured out how to monetize all of that. Uh, but also they they share that information with intelligence agencies, not just in the U.S., but uh, in probably 90 countries around the world. And that's important. I think that's legitimate because if someone's going online and they're trying to figure out how to build a bomb, uh, you know, I want uh, I want, you know, relevant, uh, you know, investigators, criminal investigators to, you know, to, to know about that. So I think that's OK. But the third area with Google especially uh, concerns me, and that is uh, changing values. So Google has very strong values. They're very proud of their values. Uh, politically in the US, they lean left. I lean left a bit. Uh, and they're very proud of their values. They were founded by utopians. Uh, and now we begin to look at the leaks and we realize, wait, this is serious. They're serious about this mission. So, you know, mission one, make money. Mission two, serve the intelligence community, which is legitimate. Mission three, change values. In other words, make humanity better. So, uh, but by whose definition? That's the problem. So uh, one of the leaks from video, uh, from uh, Google was a video, an eight-minute video called The Selfish Ledger. So if you look up The Selfish Ledger and you, you put that in quotes and put my name next to it, You'll come to uh, not just a link, so you can watch the eight-minute film that, that leaked out of there, but you can actually look, look at a transcript that I made, and I've marked up the transcript 
to make it very, very easy to see, you know, kind of what's important and what's, what's, uh, what's uh, uh, disturbing in that film. But that film is a, it was made by the advanced products division of Google. It was never meant to leave the company. And what it basically says is that the Google has the power uh, to reshape humanity according to, and I'm, this is a quote, company values, company values. Now, did they say reshape humanity? No, they, they say resequence human behavior. That's the, way the, that's the way they talk about it. But they're serious about that. They're serious about their values. They're serious about uh, knowing what's best for humanity. And they're serious about reshaping, you know, doing whatever they can to bring about uh, what they see as a better world. The problem is that, you know, maybe half the people in the world, maybe a lot more than that, would not agree with those values. I mean, there are 1.6, almost 1.7 billion uh, Muslims in the world. I don't think the Muslims would agree. Uh, there are a lot of people who lean left uh, politically. I don't think they, I'm sorry, who lean to the right politically or conservative politically. Uh, they're, they exist in every country in the world. I don't think they would agree that, uh, you know, Google's values are the, the best ones. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous to say your values are the best. The values, uh, that's the whole point. Values are what people as individuals believe in, but uh, different people have different values and each person believes strongly in his or her own values. They're, they're in a sense, they're equally valuable, at least from the perspective of the believer. So, you know, they've got three big missions uh, and they have the power, unfortunately, to act, you know, on these missions. And so that's the question is how to, Given that they're unregulated, given that there there are no laws that restrict the, the, their ability to do whatever they want to do, uh, how uh, how do we make them accountable to the public? Yeah, I mean that's my next question. Like, what, like, yeah. what do you think is the best way to go after this? Because like, there's been as you've noted a few lawsuits, um, and then there's been a couple of recent ones against a couple of other big tech firms. I know that. Uh, Steven Crowder is currently in a legal battle with both YouTube and Facebook um, and maybe Twitter, actually. Um, I know Alex Berenson uh, recently won his case against Twitter and had his account reinstated and now is uh, revealing quite a lot of things about how the US government um, was leaning on on Twitter um, and not leaking, or showing it on their own platform, which I find quite amusing. Um and then, yeah, there's like the, then there's the lawsuit by a couple of attorney generals. I'm not sure if this is the one you're referring to um, against, yeah, against Twitter and I believe Facebook as well um, for for similar reasons about um, yeah censorship during during the the COVID era. And like, is that the way you think that that these there's going to be like caps of power put on? Is it going to be like lawsuits or is it like a, a is it like individuals just deciding I'm out? Or is it? Is it? The lawsuits ac accomplish nothing except uh, occasional fines, and uh, th these companies are so big and have so much cash that they usually anticipate having to pay the fine. They put, put they put the fine aside. Mm -hmm. I mean, the EU has 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 levied uh, at least three very large fines, multi billion dollar uh, billion euro fines against Google since uh, twenty seventeen. Uh, totaling more than 10 billion euros, that's that's nothing 
for Google. Google always appeals. So far, they've lost on their appeals. But again, it's 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 the the fines don't mean anything to these companies, even even what we think of as big fines. So forget that these legal actions will accomplish absolutely nothing. None of them are criminal actions, first of all. So they're not they're not going after any individuals. And we do that sometimes. We did that with Enron. We went after. Uh, you know, their executives, uh, uh, that company that uh, I forgot the name of it now with that, that attractive female CEO who misled a lot of people, Elizabeth Holmes, I think her name is. Yeah. Uh, you know, there they, the government went after her and some other people criminally, and they have been fact been prosecuted when it comes to big tech, no one's going after any of these people criminally, uh, the only penalties are fines. Fines don't mean a thing. They couldn't care less. Uh, and no one's, well, in my opinion, no regulations or laws will ever make a difference because it takes, that's a very slow process and tech is, moves very fast. So what can be done that's real? Well, on the, on the side of regulation, there is one thing that can be done. I know uh, Senator Cruz is very interested in this. Uh, and that is that uh, we could, uh, we, our government or the EU could do this, by the way, which is in fact is more likely to happen in the EU because of a woman named Vestager, who's head of the European Commission that investigates these tech companies. Uh, that's the commission that's levied these big fines against Google. Uh, here or in the EU, uh, the government could declare that Google's index, which is the big database uh, that they use to generate search results, uh, should be made public, should be a public commons. And there's there's precedent for that in law. There's precedent for that in Google's own business practices. In other words, Google does give some other companies access to its index. And it literally overnight, Google could trade an, uh, it's called an API. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an access way uh, to their index. And what would happen then is that you and I and our kids and would all set up competing search engines, <laughs> you'd have thousands of competing search engines all drawing on all this fabulous data. And those search engines would all appeal to niche audiences, uh, to women, to feminists, to Lithuanians, et cetera, et cetera. And you would turn the world of search into like the world of news media, mm -hmm. where there are thousands of, of entities all vying for our attention. And all drawing on the same information, in this case, Google's index, which is a very, very good, by far the best index of information about the in internet mm. that there is, that could be done. That's that's very light touch regulation. Uh, Google could still make money. Uh, our government did something like this to AT&T, the big telecommunications company a long time ago. So they say there's precedent, could be done. Mm -hmm. I published this proposal in Bloomberg Business Week in 2019, the day before I testified before Congress. My article was was entered into the congressional record. Uh, it's out there as a, as a possibility. And then there's what I do. Since 2016, I have been setting up monitoring systems. I have been developing ways to do to these companies what they do to us and our kids 24 hours a day. And... My systems have gotten bigger and more sophisticated. And what do they do? They preserve ephemeral content. I'm so glad that you made me really uh, dig in on, on ephemeral content and what that is and you know how it's being used and why it's so important because 
I've been building systems since 2016. This started with a phone call I got from an attorney general in 2015. He said, how would you know they're really doing these things you're saying that they, that they can do? And I said, well, I don't know. That's what I said in 2015. But in 20, by 2016, I was obsessed with this issue. And in 2016, uh, we managed to recruit 95 field agents, all registered voters in 24 U.S. states. And we equipped their computers with custom software that's undetectable, that basically preserves ephemeral content that's, that's being shown to them on their screens and then instantly sends it to us in, a, in one location where we analyze it and, and where we aggregate the data. So we preserved in 2016, before the presidential election, about 13,000 searches on Google, Bing, and Yahoo and about 98,000 web pages to which the search results linked. And we were able to analyze it and we analyzed it. We found uh, a, a significant, substantial bias toward Hillary Clinton in Google search results in all 10 positions of search results on Google's first page, but not on Bing or Yahoo. So we had that for comparison. And that level of bias, if it had been present nationwide, we, knew, we know from our experiment, our experimental work, would have been enough to shift to Hillary Clinton, whom I supported, between 2.6 and 10.4 million votes with no one knowing and without leaving a paper trail for authorities to trace, except the content that we had preserved. So that was 2016. We set up a bigger system, more ambitious in 2018. In 2020, we went wild. We didn't preserve 13,000 search results. We preserved 1.5 million Whoa. ephemeral experiences on Google, Bing, Yacht, Yahoo, YouTube, Google's homepage, Facebook, and more. And, you know, we're still analyzing those data, but we presented our, our findings at different, uh, two different scientific meetings, and we're going to be publishing uh, a summary of what we found. We found incredible stuff in 2020. Now, including the fact that, again, the level of bias on Google could easily have shifted 6 million votes to Joe Biden. Wow. With no one knowing, and again, except for our monitoring with, with no, without leaving a paper trail, 6 million votes. And, and Biden won the popular vote by a, about 6 million votes. I could be off slightly, as you, as you know, I'm sometimes off a little bit on my numbers. But, uh, yeah, but the point is, on that, like, even if you're talking that scale, that is a substantial number of votes. Like That's right. And, and, it's, and we had a substantial amount of data. So you might be asking, well, why didn't Trump, who ran to you know, 60 different courts trying to overturn the election results, why didn't he take our data to court? Because he was never concerned about data. He was never concerned about the truth or facts. Never. He just was wanted to make a big stink and, 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 and get his followers to overturn our government. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, for to him, real data, real numbers would ma would make no difference. But it's kind of ironic if you think about it, because I actually have over overwhelming evidence of of rigging in the twenty twenty presidential election. 
I mean, we've got the data. It's real. It's, it's this is not imaginary, like uh, like you know, so many of Trump's claims are. This is real. But there was another result of our 2020 monitoring that's much more important and really is 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 I think the best answer to the question you raised, which is, what do we do? How do we make these companies accountable? We decided on October 30th, 2020, to go public with some of our findings. No, we had never gone public before an election because we we didn't want to interfere. We were afraid Trump would run to the Supreme Court and try to shut Google Google down or something. We didn't know what would happen, but we we didn't we've never went public before an election, but this time we did. So this was just a few days before the November 2020 election. And we went public and we sent information into uh, Congress. And uh, as a result, on November 5th, two days after the election, three U.S. senators sent a very threatening letter to the CEO of Google. Two pages summarizing Epstein's research findings and saying, how do you account for this? This, this high level of bias that you're showing people in your search results and in and on YouTube and so on how do you how do you account for this and uh, you know we're concerned because we think that can shift a lot of votes it's very dangerous for for democracy so uh, Google did eventually reply but before Google replied they did something more important they turned off the bias in the Georgia, Senate runoff elections. So this was November. They turned off the bias. Just in one Georgia. election. That's all they decided to do. They just. <laughs> but that's all. That's all that was left. Yeah, but I just, I, I, I that's, that's stunning that that, that they that they have that level of, oh, well, we'll, we'll just turn off the bias. Like in my head, like I, they've just walked over to some switch I, and just gone. To be honest with you, I, I didn't even think that was possible until Zach Voorhees walked out of Google with 950 pages of documents. One of the documents was a manual for a system they call their Twiddler system. And it says right in the front cover, it's a system for adjusting bias in uh, search results. And Zach Voorhees, the whistleblower, told me that they can turn bias on and off like switching a light switch. And... That's what we got them to do right after the presidential election in 2020 in the U.S. They turned off the bias so that in the Senate elections in Georgia. So now this is November. So that means November, December and the first few days of January before those elections. Google completely turned off the bias in Georgia. How do I know that? Because we had a thousand more than a thousand field agents in Georgia. We had in other words, we had data coming in on the computers of more than a thousand real registered voters. And this is, uh, was undetectable by Google. They didn't know which voters and you know what data we were getting. And they literally, these are thousand field agents got clean data. One, one of the things Google was doing in the presidential election was sending go vote reminders, mainly to liberals, oh, mainly to yeah. Democrats, right? Well, in Georgia, they turned off the go vote reminders. No one got go vote reminders in Georgia. They just turned it off. That's easy. And they turned off the bias in Google search results and more. They literally just pulled out 
of Georgia. Now that's so that is the the answer. So that so this year, so the the answer is how do you make the Google and other companies accountable to the public? How do you make the next Google in the future accountable to the public? You set up large-scale permanent monitoring systems that run 24 hours a day, and that's what we're doing right now. And we are monitoring data that's going not just to voters in the US, but that's going to children because I think that's an even bigger problem is the kind of brainwashing that Google and perhaps other companies are perpetrating on children uh, without parents' knowledge, without anyone's knowledge, certainly without the kids' knowledge. And we are the first group in the world that has ever attempted this. But the point is we are now building a system that will track content going to children, track it and accumulate it, aggregate it, analyze it, archive it. And uh, we will expose any irregularities that we see. And that's how you make these companies accountable. Because when we exposed Google in 2020, they shut off the bias. Mm. And you know what? When we expose Google and other companies, uh, when we expose the shenanigans, the manipulations they're using with voters, they're going to stop. And when we expose the manipulations they're using on children, they're going to stop. And we are trying to get into at least all 11 swing states uh, by the midterm elections, which are in November here. Uh, and we hope by next year to get in all 50 states. And then we're not stopping because we've already been approached by people from Canada, from Sweden and other countries saying, help us set up monitoring systems. When we get our system here pretty much in shape and you know, kind of shake the bugs out of it, uh, we are going to work with organizations around the world and we are going to help other countries set up permanent large-scale systems that will monitor the content that the tech companies are sending to their people, to their voters, to their children. And that is how you make these companies for the first time accountable to the public. Well, that that feels like an absolutely fantastic place to to end things. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant quite Correct. often. And can I give you can I give you a couple of links? Yes, please, please do. All right, for people who want to uh, improve their privacy or the privacy of their family, uh, go to myprivacytips.com, myprivacytips.com. Uh, it's an article of mine. It begins with the words, "I have not received a targeted ad on my mobile phone or computer since 2014." That's me. So, there are ways to use technology without having your <laughs> everything you do surveilled. So myprivacytips.com, that's one. If people want to support our work, they can go to mygoogleresearch.com, mygoogleresearch.com. If people want to see this big report I prepared for the Joe Rogan experience, and I've, I've, since then I've updated it, they can go to Google's Triple Threat, Google's Triple Threat.com. And that's a booklet. It's entirely free. And that will give you references, summaries of, of, of our studies. It'll give you all the details. It's really an expanded version of my congressional testimony. It's expanded and updated right, right up till the present, pretty much. And, uh, well, I could go on and on with links, but 
start with those three. Google's triplethreat.com, myprivacytips.com, and mygooglesearch.com. Okay. Well, for people, uh, I will put that all in the description so people can just check that out there. Um, oh, 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 one more thing. I'm, I forgot I have to say this. Uh, and if any of, any of you out there know any billionaires, like Elon Musk would be a perfect guide to, to help build our nationwide monitoring system. Uh, Peter Thiel, um, Sheldon Adelson's widow, um, you know, the, the remaining Koch brother. Uh, if any, any of you out there know a billionaire and can get me a meeting, uh, please, please, please get in touch uh, with us. You can write to us directly at uh, info, I-N-F-O, at AIBRT.org. Info at AIBRT.org. Well, hopefully someone is listening that can help you out. I don't know. I can't promise anything, but <laughs> hopefully um, but yeah, um, Robert, I really want to thank you. You've been very generous with your time and um, it's sure. been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. You have um, scared me sufficiently, I believe. Um, there's a lot of scary things in there and hopefully your your monitoring program uh, is a success. I look forward to hopefully seeing it in the UK at some point. That would be awesome. Sure. <laughs> but Can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait to get there and build it. Well, call me. <laughs> yep, will do. Anyway. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you for listening and, and for helping to teach people about these issues. They're extremely important issues. No problem. Anytime. I'll be shouting this out tomorrow morning. I'm on a, a podcast with Sonia Bolton um, first thing in the morning on her live breakfast show. So, uh, yeah, I'll be shouting that out, this out. So maybe that'll get us uh, a little bit more uh, exposure as well. She's pretty popular, actually, these days. She was getting, she was getting as many viewers online as Sky News um, at one point. So... Yeah. Thanks very much. Anyway. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time. Thanks for listening.